a new drought emergency for Southern California. So it's really the diversification of water supplies along with improving our efficiency that have prepared us to face droughts. I'm M.G. Perez with Jade Heinemann. Maureen is off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Heating up the cost of natural gas. People who watch that market are saying that it's probably going to be up another 20% or so, and you're going to see that reflected in your bill. A San Diego Jewish leader responds to comments made by the artist known as Ye. Help for college students who don't want to get scammed looking for a place to live. And the lounge that is the cat's meow. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can, all right? Thanks. San Diego County and the rest of Southern California are under a new drought emergency announced this week. The declaration comes from the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which services 26 different agencies that provide water to 19 million people, including you and me. The emergency could trigger additional mandatory water restrictions in the new year. Jeff Stevenson is Water Resources Manager with the San Diego County Water Authority and joins us now to discuss more about this. Jeff, welcome to Midday. Thank you. Good morning. Let's begin with a reality check. Despite recent rain and snowfall, the drought continues. Have we lulled ourselves into a false sense of security? Well, here in San Diego, we've been through this before. Back in the early 1990s, we were facing significant water cutbacks, so we began to prepare for future droughts, and we've done that in a number of ways that have really prepared us to get through situations like this where there are supply shortages in some areas, but not necessarily all areas. Remind us, how has San Diego County prepared for this? What are the investments the County Water Authority has made? Well, the Water Authority and its member agencies have developed multiple water supplies since the early 90s. If you go back in time to around 1990, 1991, we got our water from two sources. It was from Metropolitan Water District and surface water supplies. Since then, we've added desalinated seawater, recycled water, groundwater, more surface water storage capacity, and other supplies so that we're not reliant on just one or two sources of supply. So Jeff, would you say those investments have made us drought proof? For the San Diego region, we always are looking out for droughts and preparing for droughts. And part of that in being drought proof is not only the supplies that we've developed, but also continuing water conservation and water use efficiency. So it's really the diversification of water supplies along with improving our efficiency that have prepared us to face droughts like the one we're facing now. 
So the drought emergency declaration comes from the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. How does that impact San Diego County? Well, we get about 12 or 13 percent of our water from Metropolitan. Metropolitan has two supply sources that they rely on. That's the Bay Delta, which is a state water project, and the Colorado River. So both of those water supply sources are having issues. So that would potentially impact up to 13% of our water supply here in San Diego. But we have backup supplies that we've developed over the last 30 years. An example would be what we call carryover storage, which is water that we have in a reservoir that allows you to carry over your supplies from year to year in case situations like this where Metropolitan has to cut their supplies to us, we have those backup supplies to use just in case. Please remind us, are there any current mandatory water restrictions here in San Diego? Well, there's 24 member agencies that we have uh, for the water authority. So we're a wholesaler. And then you and I buy our water from one of those 24 agencies. Each of those agencies have different rules and regulations in place. The one that everyone is really focusing on now is the irrigating of non-functional turf. And when I say non-functional turf, I mean turf that is not used, grass that is not used for any purpose other than to look nice. And it's focused on commercial, industrial, and institutional sites and facilities. So as of now, there is a prohibition, and that's from the state, against watering those types of areas that have grass. If it's not being used, if it's just there for looks, they don't want you watering that because it's not really considered necessary at this point. So that's coming down from the state. And then each of our member agencies has a different um, set of rules in place. So you'd have to look at each of those member agencies, each water agency's specific rules to see what's in play in your area. So Gloria Gray, who is the chair of the Metropolitan Water District's board, has said, quote, some Southern Californians may have felt somewhat protected from these extreme conditions over the past few years. They shouldn't anymore. We are all affected, end quote. Could that be interpreted that she's talking about San Diego? Well, we've done a lot of things, like I mentioned, to prepare for droughts. And what we're doing now, if member, if Metropolitan were to go to allocations in the future, they've mentioned if we don't have rain this winter, if it continues, continues to be dry, we may end up going to allocations. That would be Metropolitan. What that means to us is that part of that Metropolitan supply is cut. In this case, that's where we would look to our carryover storage and continued water use efficiency and conservation to get us through that period. So this is the fourth year in a row uh, drought conditions in the state, and Governor Newsom has been calling for mandatory water cuts, as you mentioned. Are San Diego residents, businesses, universities, et cetera, using less water now than we have in the past? We are. The San Diego region has done an excellent job. Going back to around 1990, we've reduced our per person water use by over 40%. So if you think about that, that's really a great increase in efficiency over time. And we continue to improve on that efficiency. In terms of the governor's request to reduce water use recently, we are showing signs of improving that month to month. And we had a very good October in terms of reducing water use and November is looking good as well. So is the water authority calling on residents to reduce water use? We are always asking for a reduction in water use in terms of increased conservation. We have on our website, which is watersmartsd.org, a number of programs and rebates that will help people who are looking for ways to use less. And if you've already done a lot, maybe take a look at the website and see if there's a new program or new offering that might help you find a way to save just a little bit more.
What are some of those programs? We have a very generous turf removal program right now. So if you have turf in your yard, you want to take it out, you can get a financial incentive to do that. In some places, it's over $4 per square foot to remove that turf. When you think about where water is used here in San Diego, indoor efficiency is very good. It's very high. So outdoors, that's the next opportunity to save water. So if you're looking for programs, ways to reduce water use, the landscape, taking out turf that you don't use is a good way to save water. And there are many programs and ideas as well, classes you can take to come up with ideas to help you remove the turf and put in something that looks much better than turf, that's colorful, requires less maintenance, and requires much less water. Nobody likes to be told what they have to do, but what would mandatory water restrictions look like and how do they help the emergency? So if Metropolitan were to allocate their supplies to the water authority, we would then allocate those supplies to each of our 24 agencies. It would be up to each of those agencies to decide how they want to reduce their water use. The good thing though, is that we have the carryover storage available and it would be up to our board of directors to decide how and when to use that carryover storage to make up for any shortages in water coming from Metropolitan. What are some ways people can reduce their water use? Well, the simple ways that don't cost anything, such as taking shorter showers, uh, things like that, running only only full loads of dishes or laundry, and outdoors this time of year, we had rain earlier this week, you can really turn your irrigation system off for at least several weeks, if not longer. You can go out and check the soil and see if it's still moist. Leave your irrigation system off for the winter when you don't need that water. That allows us to keep that water in storage for later use and saves water at your home or business. I've been speaking with Jeff Stevenson, Water Resources Manager with the San Diego County Water Authority. Jeff, thank you for joining us. Thank you. San Diegans, it might be time to put on a sweater. Natural gas bills will see a sharp increase for the month of December and an even sharper one in January. San Diego Gas and Electric estimates the average gas bill for customers this month will be roughly $80. That figure could jump another 19% in January. Joining me now with more is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Uh, Eric, how are you staying warm these days? I have a hoodie and uh, a leftover soccer uh, scarf from the World <laughs> Cup that, is, that I'm using as, a, as an actual scarf. You know, layers is key right now, I feel like. So first things first, what's behind this increase in natural gas bills? Some of this is seasonal. It's typical during the course of the year when demand for gas goes up as the weather gets colder around the country, the price also goes up. So that figures into it a little bit, but that's not the only thing. San Diego Gas and Electric, you might remember back in October, asked for uh, a rate increase for their gas delivery charges. So that takes effect in January, and that's going to boost the price of gas in, in San Diego. And also, there are some geopolitical issues at play. The war in Ukraine has had an impact on gas. Europe needs extra gas, so there are uh, exports going to Europe uh, uh, that might normally be staying in this country and that means the supply here is a little bit tighter and there's not as much gas stored up even regionally it's not stored up so there's not a whole lot of extra gas to fall back on that also pushes the price up and natural gas prices are causing these kinds of increases all across the country not just in san diego 
Yeah, and it's just at the time when it gets cold and you want to use the gas, right? Exactly. I mean, is it typical to see these kinds of increases later in the year? Sure, uh, but there are a couple of things happening here in San Diego that are a little bit different. You may remember back to last year. Last year was kind of utility sticker shock for a lot of folks. Uh, we had a 25% increase in uh, the delivery charges for gas last year, added on top of the you know the rising typical season rising prices of of the commodity itself. Um, and then this year we're also getting another. Uh, another bump in that delivery charge in addition to uh, pr uh, prices increasing for that commodity. The thing you have to understand about natural gas, it is a commodity. It's traded on a futures market. So at the end of every month, the last couple of days of the month, uh, the traders kind of set the prices for the whole next month. Now, the price uh, in in uh, at the end of December is going to be higher than the price was at the end of November. And, you know, people who watch that market are saying that it's probably going to be up a, another 20% or so. And you're going to see that reflected in your bill. So how much gas is the average San Diego household using? And I mean, can that be measured? Uh, yeah, the typical customer uses what they call uh, a tw about 23 therms. And just to give you an idea, I know therms are not something you think about regularly, but in a typical month, the San Diego customer who has a gas hookup at their house will use 23 therms uh, of gas uh, during a typical month. That's to you know run their hot water heater and whatever washing they do at home that requires hot water or heat. Uh, those kinds of things are in play. In the wintertime, you might add a furnace to that. And that creates quite a bit of load. The average uh, usage in December jumps to about 31 therms. So that's, you know, and a third uh, more. And then in January, which is typically uh, the month where people use the most because it's the coldest, uh, that average usage goes to about 45 therms. So it's almost twice as much as you would use in a regular month. Yeah, there was a lot of frustration from customers last year, as you kind of mentioned, who felt blindsided by these increases. I mean, is the utility making an effort to better inform the community this time around? That's why they're out talking about it. They didn't say anything about it last time, and people noticed it when they opened up their bills, which is kind of like the worst time. Uh, so they're trying to just kind of give people a heads up, a warning. They're saying, look, there are things you can do to keep your gas usage lower so you won't be as affected as you might be. Uh, you can, you know, caulk your windows and weather strip around drafty doors. You can keep your furnace clean, change the filters, make sure it's working efficiently. Wash clothes in cold water is a big thing. That uses a lot of, of gas energy to heat that water and then wash the clothes in that. So if you can wash it in cold water, that's a big savings there. And people can also lower the water heater uh, thermostat uh, in their house if they have a gas water heater. So there are some things that you can do to kind of blunt the increase, but the fact of the matter is, is that the cost of the commodity and the cost of delivering that commodity is going up and San Diego residents are going to pay for it. And we've been experiencing colder than usual weather across the entire state. Does that also play into these higher prices? Yeah, it does. Um, because when you have that colder weather, that increases demand, that depletes supplies, and that drives up the cost of the commodity even further. Like I said, the, the price for uh, January's natural gas, the actual commodity, the actual cost to buy a therm of natural gas, 
in in San Diego will be set at the end of December. So if we have a nice cold run all the way through December, those prices are going to go up pretty sharply uh, for the month of January. And then they'll reset again at the end of January. What we should hope for, I think, is um, really good sweaters, uh, really good scarves, maybe some gloves in there, and um, hope that the sun comes out and, and warms everything up. Exactly. An extra blanket or two and layers, they go a long way. (laughs) I've been speaking with KPBS environmental reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, thanks for talking with us. My pleasure. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with M.G. Perez. Study after study shows an alarming increase in hate crimes and racist incidents in California targeting a variety of groups, including Jews. Worries about rising anti-Semitism have gotten more attention recently after the bigoted comments of an artist who now goes by the name Ye. So how is California's Jewish community reacting? The California Report's Saul Gonzalez spoke with Heidi Gantwork, president and CEO of the Jewish Federation of San Diego, who didn't mince words about what she's hearing and seeing in her community. The Jewish community is anxious. We are on alert. And it is different than I have seen it in my lifetime. It is pervasive. And when you combine anti-Semitism with extremist violence, you've got a really frightening situation. We're concerned. We're anxious. People are worried about where they put their kids in preschool. Is it safe? Can they send their kids to particular colleges? You know, Can they walk into their synagogue on the high holidays or are they a target? These are things people are talking about regularly in the Jewish community. So when it comes to the safety and security of Jewish institutions in your part of California, like synagogues, Jewish schools and community centers, what's happening now? So in San Diego, we are finding that every Jewish institution has to increase their budget for security. It takes away from other things they're doing. And they have to apply for nonprofit security grants. They have to harden their targets by putting bulletproof film in, cameras, armed guards, So what Federation in particular is doing is we are investing more than a million dollars over the next few years to help with all of this by providing a community security director. This is a person who is going to help every Jewish institution with trainings, with assessments, with security planning, and with uh, incident reporting and threat assessments. 
right? We need to gather information. Uh, we also have to have an emergency plan when things do happen so we know what's happening throughout the county. We also had a community security institute with nine synagogues who improved their security plans and were funding their target hardening. So there's a huge investment necessary. It's sad. I'd much rather be spending that money on other things to strengthen and, and, and you know, grow Jewish life and community. But it is necessary if we want people to participate. And I imagine if we had spoken three, four, or five years ago, yes, security at sites of Jewish life would still be an issue, but nothing like it is now. It's nothing like it is now. It's it, the the visual change, right? Walking into synagogues, you're going to see armed guards. You're going to see fencing. Uh, this is a thing that every parent checks when they send their kids to a Jewish space. It is it is very perimeter fencing and cameras, etc. Um, and the challenge we have is balancing that with the Jewish value of welcoming, welcoming the stranger. And we need to have sp safe spaces, but they also need to be welcoming. And this is something that every Jewish organization is grappling with right now. But it is a very significant change. It's a change financially. It's a change in how these organizations structure. It's a change in what leaders need to think about all the time. It's, it's very different than it was five years ago. That was the California Report, Saul Gonzalez, talking with Heidi Gantwork, president and CEO of the Jewish Federation of San Diego. Housing in San Diego County is notoriously expensive and out of reach for so many people struggling to make rent every month. This is especially challenging for college students who sometimes fall victim to online scams or dishonest landlords when trying to find an affordable place to live. There is a solution to the problem that comes with security and peace of mind for those desperately seeking a legitimate place to rent. Room Chaser is an online platform. It was created by Christine Ulrey, who had her own housing problems before coming up with the idea for Room Chaser. She joins us now. Christine, welcome to Midday Edition. Hi there. Thank you for having me. You were not only a college student in need of housing, but you had immigrated from France in 2005, which added to the difficulty. Tell us your story. I found actually a job as a living nanny, as an au pair, first in San Diego. And I liked it so much uh, that I decided to come back with a student visa to study civil engineering. Um, but as I was, uh, so I think I did two years of college here in San Diego, and it became a little hard financially to pay for tuition. So I started um, helping students who were not in San Diego yet, especially French students. I'm, I'm French. I think I said that. Yes, we said that. Uh, so I started helping French students find a school and housing and uh, get a student visa to come study in San Diego. And so that was really the beginning for the online platform roomchaser.com. How does it work? So, yes, that was definitely the beginning because uh, getting a visa to come and study in the U.S. was pretty easy. Uh, getting a school was also easy, but finding housing and decent roommates was, ju was just really, really hard. Uh, Craigslist made it very hard to find uh, stable people, stable roommates and good landlords. So, yes. Yeah, so here is how it works. It's it, it 
it looks like an Airbnb for student housing. You can enter the date you want to get to San Diego and you're going to get uh, uh, list listings of rooms that are available for rent in San Diego. You can also see who the roommates are going to be at each place. You can see their roommate profile. You can see the price of the room. You can see reviews about the room. And so all of those people, the roommates are screened and vetted. The places, we know them. They have reviews. They are legitimate. So so this is a, a great platform um, to avoid getting scammed. Is this only for international students or can any college student use the service? So it was definitely started with international students in mind and exchange students. But what actually happened is that anybody, any student who does not live in San Diego is living maybe on the East Coast, Chicago, anywhere outside of San Diego is having the same problem as international students. It's just hard to find housing when you're not in town. And when you do get in town, if you wait until you get in town to find housing, it's just too late. All the good deals are, are gone. Like you just have the worst of the worst uh, left for rent. So thanks to Room Chaser, people all over the world can actually rent their room all online. It's safe, it's secure, and they can connect with roommates as well. You mentioned getting scammed. Uh, from your perspective, how big a problem is that for students looking for housing? It's a big problem. It's a big problem. A lot of students don't say it, that they've been scammed, but every year we do have students who come to us after being scammed. I was just talking to a dad of a UCSD student like a couple of weeks ago. He got scammed and they live in San Francisco. Uh, so, so the scamming problem is huge. Scammers are very smart online. And when students are just desperate to find a place, it can be very easy to get scammed. You have endorsements from San Diego State, USD, uh, Alliant International University, just to name a few organizations. Why do those endorsements uh, matter to uh, the service and what guarantees do you offer? So it's very simple. Like we had UCSD call in the other day because they had a student who got scammed and either wanted to go back home or like, I, I mean, if they were not going to find housing, they were going to go back home. That student eventually went back home because they couldn't find housing. So uh, making sure for all those programs, accepting students from all over the world, it's very important that they offer safe and secure housing. Otherwise, the students are going to go back home and have a bad experience studying in the United States. The bottom line is San Diego is one of the most expensive rental markets in the country. How do you save students money? Is there a fee for using your platform? There is a fee to use the platform. It's all included in the pricing that we offer on Room Chaser. It's very similar to on-campus housing. You're going to have a package which does include utilities, roommate matching, and all of this. So the way we save students money is by sharing. Like when you share a place, it drops the price. So that's one way to save money and also just not having to pay multiple application fees. On Room Chaser, you pay it once when you approved, and that's it. And uh, I will also say that providing stability just saves people money because they don't have to move out every three months because roommates, because landlords. It's stable. It saves money. Christine, in your experience, what makes a good renter and a roommate candidate? 
good rent that's a great question we always think about that uh, so so cleaning is probably the number one reason why we may have a conflict between roommates and landlords also appreciate people who who maintain their place so having good cleaning habits is definitely very important number two communication skills conflict resolution skills those are very important when sharing a place together it's, it's not easy just like living with a partner or living with parents and siblings things are going to come up having the communication skills to go through those conflicts in a healthy way is is awesome is really a, a great 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 skill so the other side of that uh, uh, equation is how do you identify quality properties and landlords this has been harder to find um, landlords to, to rent to students. So we try to reach out to all the landlords we can find on Craigslist, Silo, and we explain them what we do. And some of them uh, do believe in what we do and give us a shot. And uh, that's, that's how it goes. What are some of the most successful rent stories you can share? So I will go ahead and share the story of Hamilton, Arena, Anna, and Perrin. So those were four students who didn't know each other from all over the place. Like Hamilton was from Kentucky. Anna was from France. Arena was from Lithuania. And they came all together and became best friends within a week. Their place was clean. They had a trot on the fridge, like to share cores. And uh, so that was a beautiful success story for Room Chaser, especially that I believe Anna and Perrin were like staying in a hotel until they found us. So that definitely makes me super happy when uh, stories like that happen. I believe that we have another story of four Mesa College students, four 18 years old girls. So Mesa College doesn't offer any kind of on-campus housing. So Mesa College students oftentimes uh, do not know where to get housing when they find us. We very often are able to match them with other Mesa College students like them. And at 18 year old, it is reassuring to the students and to the parents to know that they'll be staying together with students who are just like them. Here we are at the end of the year in the holiday season. Someone looking for housing right now. Could you help them? Um, do you only help college students? So yes, right now we do have a couple of bedrooms open on Room Chaser. In January, we're going to have a lot more rooms open for like spring semester, spring quarter. So we can definitely help them. You can go check the website right now and enter your date to see what's open. We actually also help interns and recent graduates who are relocating for a first job or first work experience. Room Chaser is only available in San Diego County right now. What are your plans for the future? Correct. So as of now, we only offer rooms in San Diego. We are planning to expand to Orange County and Los Angeles for the fall 2023. And more afterwards, hopefully. <laughs> I've been speaking with Christine Ulrey, founder of RoomChaser.com with a Z. Christine, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on.
You're probably familiar with traditional animal shelters where pets wait for a forever home. But KPBS reporter John Carroll found a cat rescue in La Jolla that's nothing like the usual. On Torrey Pines Road in La Jolla, close to the end where it meets Girard, you find a lounge for people and cats. A place where felines destined for euthanasia are rescued. A lounge where love between people and cats blossoms. I worked with other shelters, rescues, veterinary hospitals, and wanted to just do things differently. That's the founder and executive director of the Cat Lounge and Rescue, Renee Shamlu. She's a practicing attorney, that's her nine to five job, but as much as Shamlu loves the law, her passion for cats compelled her to get involved in rescuing them and matching them up with people. She started in her apartment. And it was successful, but that's such a small scale, so I knew I needed something. So that's where the Cat Lounge came from. And yeah, this is it now. <laughs> The building that is now the Cat Lounge and Rescue had been vacant for some time, so it was affordable. It opened in 2019. About a year ago, Shamlu obtained the space next door. A wall was knocked down and a nursery was born. It is light and airy. Kittens are kept with their sisters and brothers in separate compartments. You don't want to swap or intermingle litters because one might have diseases and the other one doesn't. The compartments have clear walls. Shamlu, along with her staff and volunteers, aren't fans of cages. Anyone who works at a shelter will tell you the kittens get adopted out much faster than their older counterparts. I've never had cats before, so it'll be, it'll be new. While we were recording this story, Rebecca Powell and her husband Kane came in to browse. But after a few minutes, love was in the air, and a new chapter of human-feline relations was about to begin. The two kittens, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. And they liked me, I think, and so uh, I guess they're going to come home with me. Over on the lounge side, the adult cats spend their days welcoming visitors, no doubt hoping for that right one. But it's not a bad place to wait. There are lots of toys and cat trees. Even a catwalk hangs from the ceiling. There is plenty to do. The Cat Lounge Rescue and Adoption Center is non-profit. They survive on donations and on admission. There is a fee of $20 for adults, 10 for kids and seniors. Shamlu says most visitors don't end up adopting. She says a lot of people just like spending time here. We have Wi-Fi, so if you want to bring your laptop and do work, I don't know how much work you'll get done. For those who adopt, the cost of admission is subtracted from the adoption fee, which ranges between $95 and $300, depending on the cat's age. But once you're a cat parent, the cat lounge doesn't abandon you. Once they do go home, we call after a few days to see how things are going. Um, we are always a resource for our adopters. And I think that's one of the best things about adopting from a rescue is you have our knowledge and our care behind it. That knowledge and care has had a pretty remarkable outcome. A chalkboard in the corner of the lounge spells it out. Once the pandemic hit, they shot from 223 adoptions in 2019 to nearly 1,700 the following year. The total to date is 4,573 cats. Connections made, homes found, lives saved. John Carroll, KPBS News. 
For more information about the Cat Lounge and Rescue, we have a link in our web story at kpbs.org. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with M.G. Perez. The search for a good night's sleep can be elusive to many of us, including myself. According to the CDC, some 70 million Americans suffer from chronic sleep loss. But the stress and obligations of everyday life make getting enough sleep a common problem today. Here to help us better understand sleep and how it impacts our overall health is Dr. Derek Lowy, clinical psychologist and sleep medicine specialist with Scripps and director of the Insomnia Program at the Scripps Clinic Viterbi Family Sleep Center. And welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. So uh, sleep is something that we all do naturally, of course. So why can it be so hard for us to get a good night's rest? Well, it's interesting. I mean, sleep is all something, something we all do, and it's something that we need to do. And yet, it can be such a, a difficult struggle for many people. And I think part of the reason for that is that sleep can be easily affected by many things, right? I mean, stress can throw off a night's sleep. Being ill, common cold symptoms can throw off a night's sleep. Your neighbor's dog barking can affect your sleep. So in a way, sleep is very vulnerable to disruption. And if it occurs on a regular basis over time, you can develop chronic insomnia or chronic difficulty sleeping. The good news in that, though, is not only is sleep vulnerable in many ways, it's also remarkably resilient. And in a way, it kind of has to be because sleep is a survival behavior. And so I'm always trying to reassure my patients with bad insomnia that, you know, even though sleep is not going well, your sleep system is resilient. And our job is to find a way to help bolster your natural sleep ability. So what are the most important elements to getting a good night's rest? Well, if you're currently sleeping well, the idea, I guess, is to maintain where you're at. And a few key points there would include maintaining a fairly regular sleep-wake schedule, regular bedtime, regular morning wake-up time, at least on weekdays for people who are working. Weekends can be a little bit different because we might stay up a little bit later and sleep in, which is fine. But if you're maintaining a regular sleep schedule, let's say five days a week, you're probably doing a good job of keeping your sleep-wake rhythm or circadian rhythm running on time. Another thing that's helpful also is uh, in the morning when you get up, make sure you access a lot of bright light. Open up the window coverings, bring in lots of light into the room. If you have time to be outside at all, do that. Light entering the eyes in the morning at the same time every day is an anchoring effect on your sleep-wake rhythm. And so a consistent morning wake-up time with morning light, and even better, a little bit of exercise, is a great way to keep your sleep clock running on time. And then there's some other obvious things too. You know, we don't want to be doing anything too problematic for sleep late before bedtime. For example, as we all know, caffeine's a stimulant, and caffeine late in the day for some can cause difficulty with falling asleep at bedtime. I'm often asked about exercise too close to bedtime. I feel like the best time to work out is in the morning. The second best time is any other time, except too close to bedtime if it's a cardio workout because you might be getting yourself too pumped up too close to bedtime. 
What are some of the consequences of not getting enough sleep? Well, the short-term consequences, I think we're all pretty familiar with that. We just don't feel great the next day. We're kind of dragging, we're sluggish, fatigued, low energy. Maybe our thinking isn't quite there. Our focus, our concentration is, is less than ideal. Sometimes we can get a little bit irritable, you know. So the short-term consequences are, are pretty obvious. I think where it becomes more problematic is with chronic sleep difficulty over time. By chronic insomnia, technically we mean difficulty sleeping most nights of the week for at least three months. But the problem with chronic insomnia is now you're having a negative effect on your immune system and other systems that maintain long-term mental and physical health. And so there we, we are concerned about issues related to metabolic syndrome or weight gain. We're worried about memory effects long-term. There's new studies coming out showing that inadequate sleep can, can impair our memory long-term. There's also increased risk for other issues, cardiac issues, for example. Uh, if you are not getting enough sleep on a consistent basis, you're not functioning well during the day, you could be at risk in risky situations such as driving, for example. So there are a lot of consequences, both short-term, mid-range, and long-term of not getting adequate sleep. In recent years, over-the-counter treatments have become increasingly popular, such as melatonin and THC supplements. Are those effective sleep aids, in your opinion? They can be. So for someone who, let's say, has, is having sleep problems but has not taken a prescription sleep medication, a great way to start is with melatonin. It's gentle. It's not habit-forming. It has minimal side effects. The key, though, is the type of melatonin. There's long-acting and short-acting. Short-acting is good for falling asleep. Long-acting is better for maintaining sleep. So that's an important point. As far as THC is concerned, this is a relatively new thing for us, right? Because we've only had the legalization of cannabis products for the last couple of years or so. And there isn't really good research on the impact of these products on sleep per se. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. I was working on a chapter for this topic last year. And what I found was that if you look at THC, it can have a direct benefit on sleep, depending on the strain and the dosage. CBD, not so much. CBD is good more for pain and anxiety. But if pain and or anxiety are in the way of sleeping at night, CBD could be beneficial. And of course, there are always new products or technologies saying they can improve sleep, everything from smartwatches to weighted blankets. What do you think of those types of solutions? Well, these topics come up a lot here in clinic, because as you mentioned, there's a plethora of products out there for sleep. I try to be very careful about what I recommend or don't. I mean, I, I, we're supposed to practice evidence-based medicine. And unfortunately, a lot of these products, they, there isn't a lot of data, good studies to back up their benefit or their effectiveness. So I think the, the general rule is try and see. Usually the only downside is the out-of-pocket cost. Rarely, though, are there any you know, adverse results of using these things. Weighted blankets can be helpful for sleep, certainly for anxious patients at night. There's a, a variety of sleep apps out there as well. Um, I think those are great. Reason being that it's very difficult lying in bed in the dark and the quiet when you can't sleep because your mind tends to go places. And we tend to ruminate or we're anxious or we're stressing about our to-do list, things like that. And the hyperactive mind can definitely interfere with getting into sleep. And I think having something to redirect your attention toward, like an app, guided meditation, a podcast even. Not this interview, though. I don't like people learning about sleep when they're trying to sleep. But something audio can redirect attention away from your internal thoughts, which can be helpful. 
How much does American culture impact sleep? You'll find any number of internet gurus who say sleep when you're dead, uh, work hard, play hard, and, you know, will claim that they sleep only four hours a night to be a highly functioning and productive individual. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's dangerous thinking. I think that's working with a false economy. I think the thinking that, you know, sleep is, is a waste of time is, is a bad long-term strategy. There are countless studies that have talked about the long-term effects of chronic sleep deprivation. Now, sleep deprivation, along the lines of what you're saying, is different than insomnia. For insomnia, these people give themselves ample time at night to get the sleep they need, but they can't. In this case, people artificially deprive themselves of sleep by working, you know, burning the candle at both ends, staying up late, getting up early, trying to be more productive. I think they're at the greatest risk of all for all these sleep disorders that are related to lack of sleep in terms of short and long-term health, because the body wants more sleep opportunity, but you're not honoring that. And to be clear, how many hours of sleep does a person need to stay healthy? And do we need naps? I think the average for the, you know, healthy adult, Western adult is probably seven, seven and a half hours at night. Now you got to consider that that's the average of the normal need the normal range there are normal sleepers out there who get five with five or six hours of sleep without any complaints i have patients in the insomnia clinic who can't function on less than nine hours of sleep so there's a certain amount of relativism to this but on average most people should be getting about seven to eight hours most nights of the week as far as napping is concerned if you're really having a hard time falling asleep at bedtime you should avoid the nap to save your sleep drive for nighttime however we do have a circadian dip in the afternoon, the post-lunch dip. And I think that's nature's invitation to us to take a little siesta in the afternoon. And if we use it cautiously, maybe the power nap is 20, 30 minutes, that should not significantly detract from our nighttime sleep. However, like I said, if you do have a problem falling asleep at bedtime, you probably should avoid the nap. Mm. And I'm curious, what's your sleep routine like? What works for you? I'm pretty consistent. Um, I go to bed, you know, 10, 10, 30, I fall asleep pretty quickly. I wake up a few times at night. My alarm goes off around 6.30. You know, I feel fortunate in that regard. Uh, my patients often ask me how I sleep. And if I say I sleep well, they feel like I can't relate to them. And if I sleep, if I say I don't sleep well, they'll say, well, you what, you can't fix yourself? How can you fix me? So it's kind of a no-win question. But I'm fortunate. I think I sleep pretty good overall. This is good. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your insight. I've been speaking with Dr. Derek Lowy, a clinical psychologist and sleep medicine specialist with Scripps and director of the insomnia program at the Scripps Clinic Vitterby Family Sleep Center. Dr. Lowy, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. <laughs>